being homeless in that tent was the best place I could have found myself at that time. After a month of being there, I was still really struggling mentally. I contemplated suicide at a river um, and immediately went to a counselor to find out what was going on because I never considered myself suicidal or anything. I just had no idea. Every, every kind of emotion was going in and coming out of me all at once. And I was diagnosed with PTSD. And because I was in the tent, I was somewhere that was, nature was so healing for me and being outdoors my whole life. And I just would go and hike every single day from my tent. And then I would start to just work out with logs and rocks and things. And I would bathe in the river and cleanse and I couldn't have healed better faster um, or, or learned tools to move that energy realistically. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. How would you define the word adventure? Oh my goodness, an adventure. Um, that's so funny. I've had this conversation with, uh, with my boyfriend about the difference between an adventure and an expedition. And I feel like an adventure is something that can be, can be new or a new twist on it to the individual. And I find an expedition is something that's like completely out of your realm, um, you don't know fully what's coming. There's lots of unexpectedness. Um, yeah, whereas an adventure is like excitement, but you pretty you kind of know. I don't know. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, really? I, I would almost uh, swap those definitions if I were to yeah. look at it. So that's really interesting. I don't know. Yeah. I got to look up the actual definition of the two to see the, the specific difference between expedition and adventure. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is interesting. Do you have a preference? You know, if you could only have one, would you rather go on adventures or expeditions? Um, if I could only have one for the rest of time, it'd probably be adventures because I feel like you could make anything into an adventure. Um, like simply if you're taking kids to the grocery store, adding some sort of twist to it. So it's an adventure or something kind of new and fun. Um, yeah. Expeditions my way of thinking of what an expedition is, you're really pushing yourself and you need breaks from them sometimes mentally and physically. 
so yeah, I think if I could only have one for the rest of time, probably adventures. Well, I don't know a lot about you, but from, from what I've learned a little bit, you went on quite a trip starting in Oregon and you ended up in Arkansas. Is that right? From Oregon all the way to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, all the way to Baton Rouge states paddled, uh, four different rivers to get there over, over 6,500 kilometers. So I want to hear, I want to hear about that trip. Um, like from, from the beginning, tell me the story. Uh, okay. So how I ended up on the trip start with is, uh, it was created by a team of canoeists, adventurers, um, filmmakers, this group of four had come together, designed this trip. They won a bunch of grants through canoe kayak magazine, NRS web, um, MEC, they were fully funded and they had a falling out. I wasn't aware of it, that being the case at the time, but there was only one member left and they needed somebody to still go who was capable of doing the paddling, um, the hardships, but also who could document and tell the story of this journey. So um, the paddler, as well as sponsors reached out to me asking if I'd be available and at all interested in doing this crazy over 200 day expedition. That would be a first um, for, for Canadians for sure, but the route was likely the first it had been done. And of course I'm like, yeah, heck yeah. <laughs> Immediately, I happened to be back in Winnipeg, Manitoba visiting my parents at the time. And I just turned to them and was like, so how do you feel about having my dog for like 200 plus days? Like, yes, what are you doing, Jillian? <laughs> and uh, that was really the only thing that I felt like I needed to sort out to be able to fully say yes to doing this trip. And so that was it. That was a month before we started, went in. I didn't know the person. We had never even spoken on the phone before. Um, and we pushed off on the 28th of April um, from the Pacific Ocean in Oregon at Astoria, Oregon, and started paddling up the Columbia River, so against the current, um, paddled up Columbia River to the Snake River, and then up the Snake River to Lewiston, Idaho. And from Lewiston, Idaho, we were met with the Continental Divide, so the Rocky Mountains, and you can't paddle there. So we had to portage over 675 kilometers. Um, so portaging is carry, either carrying your canoe on your shoulders or your, all your gear. And then you can have your canoe. We had it on a set of tires. So I had a big backpack on, camera gear on. And then I had the canoe tethered to the back of my backpack. So I was hauling the canoe with gear in it. So did you just hoof it up Highway 12 or how did you leave Lewiston? Yeah, so we went up the, the highways. Um, I don't remember the numbers, but up the highways to Lolo like Pass. Lolo Pass. So you're going up the yeah, that was, up the Clearwater and then um, yeah. And the, yep. yeah, through Missoula, Lolo Pass, that whole route um, to Helena, Montana. The second day of doing that portage, I broke my foot and I'm a little bit stubborn. So I kept going until my boots no longer fit because of the massive blisters that had been created um, from the swelling in my feet. 
and they were all infected. And in a few days, we were about to be in the second most polluted river in North America, the Missouri River. So like, okay. So where where did you break your foot? I broke it just outside Lewiston, Idaho. Okay. But I mean, it's like, I don't know, 212 miles from Lewiston to Missoula, something like that, maybe more. You're not walking 100 miles a day. Yeah, we are doing like 30 kilometers a day, roughly. Okay. It took it took 20 days to do the portage. Yeah. I mean, that's a beast of a trip. I don't, I've driven that road a hundred times and I don't even like driving it. So that is a really, really impressive trip and a hundred (laughs) percent uphill until you're on the East slope, the continental divide heading down towards Lewiston. Were you able to, to put in on Lolo Creek or anything like that? Or did you hike all the way from Lewiston to, to, uh, to Helena? We hiked the whole thing. We start because we started in the spring all end that year um there had been something like 120 percent more snowfall than regular yeah and so all of the rivers at that time they had the snow melt so they were completely flooded the columbia river was nine feet higher than regular so all the dams that we were paddling paddling against the current so we're going up to these dams where the portages around are normally only maybe a kilometer sorry i'm talking canadian here um (laughs) like less than a mile normally and we're getting to them and they're quadruple if not farther because the current is so powerful because the dams are wide open from the snow melt and then this there is smelt running at the time or smelt running at the time too so they had to have it open for that yeah so there was no way there was there was no paddling up the clear water at all and there was no paddling anything down to helena um just because wow. it was just massive water from, and then from Helena, put it on the Missouri. That's crazy. So I remember reading Lewis and Clark's journals and they were afraid to leave Astoria in the springtime because there was so much water coming down. And of course that was before dam influence, but with the dams wide open, that's not going to make a, a huge difference in, in the actual volume or velocity of the river. And as they went on up the uh, the Columbia, all the all the natives told them, "Look, you need to wait. Even if even if you keep going, you're not going to be able to cross the Continental Divide because of the amount of snowfall that there is in the springtime." And they tried. They said, "You know what? We're tough. We've already hiked across the country once. We're going to do it again." And they ended up having to turn back and almost starve to death. And they were eating their moccasins and then their dogs and stuff like that. So that's a pretty ambitious time of year to take off on a trip like this. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of reasons for the timing because it was such a massive trip and the route that we were going, there were factors of, okay, the, the spring melt, the, the mountains being in winter, and then, then you're having spring melt on the Missouri after, and then you're going through the tornado alley, and then you're getting to the South coast and there's hurricane season. So all of those had to be taken into account when planning the timing. So you have to think which one, you have to kind of give or take which one is going to be worse, which one could you maybe battle against and battling against spring, spring currents um, kind of made the most sense rather, rather than trying to battle against hurricanes or something along those lines. And you can't, you don't actually know if there's going to be a tornado or not. Um, or how bad the current technically is going to be. 
when it when the trip was originally planned there there wasn't a lot of there wasn't that sort of thought of how difficult that part was going to be against the currents but it, it it was it was super challenging but it also wasn't quite as hard as i i thought it was going to be um because you do have eddies so like the way that when the, when there's like an outreach an outcrop into water or anything it creates an area that is essentially going the opposite direction than the current it's kind of swirls right. called an eddy yep um so you can kind of jump eddy to eddy in areas where it's really high current so you can make progress and you can do things like ferrying it's called um which is a, a technique to to go use utilize the current to actually move yourself kind of up on an angle in it like when if you fall into a river with current they say to to swim on an angle towards the current because it'll naturally push you then to the bank of the river sure so that ferry angle is something like a 45 degree angle and once you get that set right especially in a boat you can really effortlessly or for minimal effort cross a river back and forth and swimming people tend to panic and, and point straight at the shore and they'll end up getting washed way downstream. Whereas if they hit that ferry angle, they can actually move across. So yeah, I'm sure you get really good at reading currents and trying to learn how to be efficient. Were you in your own canoe and the other paddler was in their own canoe? We were both in one canoe. So you're in a divorce boat. That's a tandem. That's a tandem kayak. I have a story about that one too, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, we were in one canoe, um, yeah. up until, um, once we were on the Missouri after a hundred days, um, we parted ways and I went into a kayak okay. and went solo for the rest of the trip. Wow. So did anything else crazy happen between, uh, Lewiston and Helena <laughs> besides you walking there on a broken foot? <laughs> um, we were in a blizzard in Lolo Pass area. Yeah. Um, some crazy storms. Uh, there was rattlesnakes. Our first encounter with rattlesnakes was on the Snake River, which was pretty incredible. Um, three, three we encountered there. That was a goal of mine to to see and photograph rattlesnakes. I've always wanted to do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Man, I I could do without rattlesnakes and wasps and mosquitoes. Like there's just there's some animals that I feel like are a little bit extra that don't need to exist. I guided whitewater on the Snake River for a long time. And okay. one time I was pushing downriver in a gear boat that was like 22 feet long, this massive, massive raft. And I saw a rattlesnake swimming um across the yeah. river straight towards my boat wild and it was in the springtime it was cold water and i scooped him up with my oar blade and he was just hanging draped over the oar blade um like he was completely lifeless this is so crazy and there's another gear boatman like half a mile below me so i'm holding the snake out of the water with one oar and i'm trying to use the other one to keep me in the current so that i can go down and show this guy and i started to get into a rapid section where i actually had to row and so i i put the snake back in the water and he immediately rears up and starts swimming towards the boat. I was like, take a couple oar strokes away from him. Like, no, I don't want you on here. And uh, and then we started to get closer to these rapids. And I was like, you know what, snake, you're on your own. And I pushed into the faster water and left him. But it blew my mind that that snake was trying to swim across a, a rapid section of uh, the Snake River through Hell's Canyon. Right. I, I ran into a rattlesnake swimming on the Missouri River as well. And... All I kept thinking was, okay, we've encountered everything from tornadoes 
to rattlesnakes at camp to you name it, everything, crazy storms, all of it, rapids. And now there's snakes in the water. Like there's yeah. rattlesnakes in the water. We're not supposed to be there yet. That's in the South. We're supposed to have a break for a little bit from crazy shit. <laughs> Excuse my yeah. language. There's <laughs> yeah. like a stretch where there shouldn't be bears as far as we knew. There's not supposed to be bears here, rattlesnakes, like anything in the water. We should be good. And there's rattlesnakes swimming. Yeah. <laughs> That's wild. Okay. So you get to Helena. Now, uh, was it as soon as you put in the, the Missouri that you got in a kayak or was that later on? A little bit later. I got into a kayak in St. Louis. Oh, in St. Louis. So quite a so, bit later. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did you manage all the dam crossings? Did you just um, portage around them? Yep. Yeah, just portage all around um, around everything. Um, sometimes we would we would put the canoe on tires if they were a little bit longer. Um, other times we would just carry everything because um, it was just quicker. It made more sense to just carry it. And we'd have to do two trips at that point um, generally. But yeah, you you just have to portage them. Yeah, they they technically they're supposed to allow you to use the locks, and they're supposed to actually um, the core is supposed to actually give you a ride if you call them because they've blocked a natural means of transportation right um like that but they don't want to so you'll wait around for hours so you may as well in that time just carry on <laughs> sure you know the the snake river is considered federally navigable all the way almost to boise idaho and that's through the uh the upper snake dams that they don't even have locks. Um, and it, yeah. it's crazy to me that, it, that it's considered federally navigable. So it's actually under the, uh, the rule of the coast guard all the way to Boise, even though there's no coast guard presence. So it makes it, makes it really wild to get permits to guide down there. Um, because if you guide with, with a raft, you have to have, you know, X number of days of experience on class four, class five, whitewater with clients, all that stuff. But as soon as it's motorized, now you have to have a Coast Guard issued captain's license, which requires something like 360 days of sea service, which has nothing to do with, say, running a jet boat in Hell's Canyon. It's, yeah. uh, it's a strange thing. There are some aspects of the federal government controlling those, those dams and those locks and, and those waterways that I really don't agree with. Yeah. The, one of the most interesting things I found with encountering so many dams um, like 22 dam different dams that I, that I encountered that I had to portage on the whole trip. And every single one of them was so different from the next. Yeah. Like I took photos of all of them and they were all different styles. So unique. I, I did not expect that at all. I thought they would be like consistent types in some way, at least along like one river, but they were all completely different from one another. Sure. And a lot of them were built during a similar time period. Like a lot of these snake dams were built in the fifties, but it was still different engineering firms. And they'd learn from building one dam to the next a little bit more about how to do it. And that's fascinating. I was talking with somebody a couple of years ago when we had extremely high water from a lot of snow melt might've been the year that you were doing this trip. I was concerned about some of these dams holding up. I said, you know, that concrete's getting old. And what I learned from talking to that individual was that, that that concrete was probably still curing and it was only getting harder, um, that those dams are only becoming more resilient in most ways. 
thought that oh, was cool. that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Super neat. Okay, so we're going down the Missouri, um, yeah. and uh, still springtime-ish. Yeah, still going to be springtime. So, it, is there yeah. a bunch of trees and 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 trash in the water with you? Um, not so much. Yeah, not so much because well, we're we're passing dams, so dams kind of help sure. help with that. Um, but yeah, no, there wasn't that much. It was it was starting to be summertime. Um. We were in the south, uh, or the I think south from Canada, the um, the Dakotas and and that whole area, the, the the Tornado Alley area, pretty much during tornado season. Um, so right right in summertime, we were going through there. Um, wow. So we encountered some pretty crazy storms, for sure. Um, yeah, and had our our share of uh, tornado scares out there. <laughs> A couple windbound trips uh, or days, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And then from the Missouri, it was onto the Mississippi river and down. How's the Mississippi? That's a big piece of water. Yeah, it's big. It's beautiful. Um, it was flooding when I got, got onto it a couple weeks into to being solo. It really, it rose like 30 feet in, in a day. It was insane. Um, so you really had to be careful on that, on that river for that reason because the the beaches that you'll camp on are so are just flat they're almost at the height of the water so you have to either plan to not camp on them and drag all your gear across these long beaches or you risk being on them and hope that okay there's no forecast for it to go up um but yeah so i got to camp on a couple and then i knew that it was going to rise so i'd have to haul my gear all the way up and then it did flood and then you're having to go up these steep embankments of mud um, to find camp spots. And you're going through all the trees um, and kind of mangrove area and into the bayous to find anything solid, which was really cool and beautiful for sure. Yeah. And then I learned of the fact that I ran into on a really pouring rain day, this father and son was helping this gentleman um, get a boat into the water. And I pulled in to give them a hand. And they started telling me about all the wildlife around the area. And these guys are part of the suicide squad. So they're guys that wrestle wild boars, but with their bare hands. And they're like, yeah, so you got to watch out for boars. You got to watch out for bears. You got to watch out for cottonmouths, rattlesnakes. They start listing off everything. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. There's bears here? <laughs> like, yeah. Like, no, I, I didn't think there were bear down, bears down here. That totally threw me off. <laughs> but um. But yeah, then I got to experience all the different wildlife down there too, which is really incredible. And of course, all the tropical storms um, and the typical very wet um, climate of the South. So you make it all the way to, to Louisiana. Did you feel like you'd really accomplished something by the time you got there? Or did you feel like this is, that's got to be a weird transition back into any other form of life? Well, being that the, the original plan was to paddle to Florida um, and ending up solo was not part of the plan. And I was left with none of the safety equipment, nothing. And so a stranger printed off some paper maps for me to get me to New Orleans. Um, but I didn't have any proper gear, no radio, nothing. Didn't have solar batteries or anything to keep things charged. So 
it was a super hard call to, for safety and for mental health, basically, um, to call it quits and stop in Baton Rouge. Yeah. So at that point, when I did stop, I definitely didn't feel accomplished because I thought I was letting everybody down. But now I do. It took a lot of time <laughs> for sure to be okay with making that call. Um, but, but yeah, now I feel accomplished with the whole thing. <laughs> there's kind of an interesting, there's an interesting thing going on in the guide community right now. And it, it's including like ski patrol, some ski guides, some whitewater guides, and they're starting to talk about their compensation and how little it is. I don't know if you've been following along with any of that. But one of the, the things that, that I talked about when I was guiding Whitewater, because some of these Whitewater companies employed quite a few guides, parts of the community would be like, isn't that wonderful that they're creating so many jobs? I'm like, yeah, kind of. But a lot of those guides were making like $50 a day to work a you know, 16-hour day that is really hard work with really high risk and, and yeah. requires a lot of skill. And the reality is a lot of those guides were homeless. You know, they, they lived on the riverbank next to their boat and that's, that's how they got along. And you've kind of experienced that in multiple ways in your life, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, doing those expeditions, you're not, you have to save up some, some sort of funds. You're not paid to go on them. At least I'm not. A couple, there's a few people in the world that are actually paid to go and do these expeditions and things. Um, but it's really hard to, to do that, especially as kind of selling yourself as a photographer, because it's not viewed as like an athlete and that side of things, even though you have to train just as hard as if you're documenting somebody else's journey or if you're going it alone. Um, so you have to hope that people will buy your photos or buy your story after the fact. Um, so you're going in and hoping that you make something off of it, having no idea if you are or not. And then, um, and then the homeless side, I, I have been, <laughs> been there too, <laughs> before that expedition, before that, um, been there where I've had to leave everything, um, to, to get away from an abusive relationship, um, leaving home. Um, I had a dog sled business with the person had to leave that as well as all the dogs behind to kind of escape from that um, situation and ended up being homeless um, for seven months, living in a tent in the woods at that time. So I, I can relate <laughs> for sure. I, I'm sorry that that happened to you. Um, that's extremely difficult. And do you, do you feel like there's some catharsis in going on these big lengthy expeditions that's helped you from that? Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Being homeless in that tent was the best place I could have found myself at that time. After a month of being there, I was still really struggling mentally. I contemplated suicide at a river um, and immediately went to a counselor to find out what was going on because I never considered myself suicidal or anything. I just had no idea. Every, every kind of emotion was going in and coming out of me all at once. And I was diagnosed with PTSD. And because I was in the tent, I was somewhere that was nature was so healing for me and being outdoors my whole life. And I just would go and hike every single day 
from my tent. And then I would start to just work out with logs and rocks and things. And I'd bathe in the river and cleanse and I couldn't have healed better faster um, or, or learned tools to move that energy realistically. And I've continued to do all of those. It's been six years now. And I still go to the same river when I'm in Squamish in that town where I was, where I was in that tent. I still every morning will go and do the same workout routine, same hike and go and bathe in the same river. Um, even though I have a nice hot shower at home and a gym that I could go work out at. Um, it's just such a, there's so much more healing power there I found. Um, and, and yeah, through, through being there, I, it allowed me to feel more comfortable to start sharing what I was going through and what I had been through and the response that I received from people who left their abusive relationships because they saw me having left mine and, and sharing about that. Um, it inspired me to continue to share my story and push myself a lot more. And it's really what gave me that motivation to just kind of say yes to all of these crazy expeditions and world first and Canadian first and things like that, that I'd never had goals of ever, but not having that fear and um, feeling you can kind of push yourself and get through anything totally stems from having that experience. Well, good on you for recognizing that you needed help and, and going and getting it. That's a really, really difficult and important step. And depending on the community that you come from, it can be even harder, right? So like the first time that I got hurt in Afghanistan, I had a bad um, traumatic brain injury. And the doctor said, you know what, in like 10 days, you're going to feel a lot better. All the, all the stuff that you're experiencing right now, it's just going to get a lot better. And then you're going to be back in the fight. And after a couple of weeks, I was like, I've not experienced any change. That's positive. If anything, this stuff is getting worse and ended up having to go and talk to a psychologist. And he asked me a little bit about where I'm from, you know, rural community, ranching community. And he said, so if you talk to people, back in your hometown, would they think that that mental health isn't a real thing? And I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. And he said, okay, that's the place that we're going to start. And God bless him for that. Right. Um, and that was a really, really difficult step for me, but anymore, I look at it like it's a, like it's my truck. If my truck's making a weird sound, I probably need to take it to the mechanic because chances are it's going to get worse, not better. And there's a little bit of courage in that too, because you don't want to know what's wrong with it. It might be really difficult to fix, but it is not going to get better all on its own. Uh, you need to go get some help. So good on you. And if anybody else is out there kind of experiencing some type of thing that they might think is a mental health issue, just go talk to somebody about it. Go find yeah. a, a brain mechanic and see what they can wrench on. For sure. I I wholeheartedly agree. And anyone, if anyone is listening to you and, and takes that step, the biggest thing is oh, you're the only one that's going to heal you. So be proud of yourself for taking that first step. You should already feel accomplished because you're already taking the steps to save your own life. It's not that therapist. It's not the counselor. It's not the pills that they give you. It's the fact that you pushed yourself that day to leave your house and go to that counselor's office. You did that and own it. And it, it right there, it gives you a little bit more confidence and courage and power over whatever you're going through. And it doesn't mean in any conceivable way that you're weak. It means that you're strong. Yeah. 
And that's, that's sure. another thing that can be difficult to realize, but it is, it is an absolute truth. Yeah. Okay. Enough <laughs> of that for now. What are some other cool, <laughs> cool expeditions that, uh, that you've been on? Um, sure. Well, you mentioned the divorce boat. So my friend, Jamie Sharp and I took a tandem sea kayak, um, down the Colorado river through the grand Canyon. Are you still friends? Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. right. So he went, he went through three lady friends with that boat. He kept trying and kept trying and every single one of them, it didn't work out. And he finally was like, Jill, it's a week out from this trip. This girl's now bailed on me. You're my friend. You said you were kind of interested in this thing. I trust you. Do you want to come? And like, I'm in Jamie, let's do this. Um, yeah. And we're still good friends. <laughs> it was fine. <laughs> That's great. That's not an easy thing to do. That was another thing that I saw guide in whitewater is, you know, we, we had a bunch of these tandem inflatable kayaks and couples would, would opt for those. And we would kind of give them the disclaimer ahead of time and let them know that this is called a divorce boat. And the first day, you know, they eat it in a rapid and it's like, ha ha ha. And the second day, there's some arguments like, I said left. And then the third day, it's like, uh, we're not going to be in the same boat today. <laughs> and it's a real problem. It definitely takes both per people have to be a specific type of person. The person in the bow really has to put any ego aside because they have to listen to the person in the back communicate. And the person in the back has to be a com good communicator, but also has to be patient that the person in the front might screw up sometimes. And the person in the front is often not as strong in, in that realm. And so the person in the back really has to have a lot of control of like steering and all of it. They and they have to just be patient and, and understanding of all of that side of it. And so that was what was really good with Jamie and I was he's a guide. He's guide his entire life. And um, he was very patient and he was really good. He knows how to communicate well what to do next. Um, and talk me through, through things that I don't claim to, I'm not a whitewater paddler. I've done whitewater stuff before, but I would never say I'm a whitewater paddler in any way. Um, and I really went in this as this is Jamie's goal. This is his expedition. I'm going there to support my friend achieving his goal. So I'm not going to try to override anything because of that. And so being in the bow, it was just, Jamie, you shout at me, you shout, if you have to shout really loud, really like angrily, you do it because I might not hear you or I might not grasp that it's that regret, like that it's that meaningful. It's okay. Like let it out. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And we did, yeah, we were fine. We had no, no sort of issues. We had a good flow at camp too, of a good routine, um, which is also something that's pretty important if you're, if there's two of you and and you're trying to do everything at camp kind of together, um, like have all your cooking stuff and sharing a tent and that side of things. It's really important to have a really good flow there. And um, those like the strong, strong parts kind of figured out. So I would set up camp while he was cooking kind of thing. Um, yeah, no, it worked out well. I'm, we're both, I'm really easygoing. So <laughs> I just, I spent a hundred days with a stranger who was known Oh, I found out afterwards for kind of rubbing people the wrong way. So I'm pretty easygoing. <laughs> well, that's an important part of it too. And, 
and you've got to stay flexible on river trips. I mean, it, it's a liquid adventure and it's going to throw, throw wrenches at you. So if you're a, a really rigid type of person and, and you think that everything should happen on a specific schedule in a specific way, you're probably going to end up a little bit disappointed in, in how this all shakes out because it's going to change. The plan is going to change the place that you want to camp at is going to have somebody in it. But when you try and pull up and you've got to keep going and there's just a lot that, that, that changes about a river trip. And that's, that's a lot of what makes it such an interesting journey as well is because the outcome, the result is going to be very different from what you thought it was going to be, no matter how much planning you put into it. Definitely agree (laughs) for sure. So is it mostly river trips that you've done or um, is there some overland stuff as well? Um, well, I've done it kind of everything. Um, I've done done some, some mountaineering on one 50-day expedition. I was up, I paddled through northern Alaska and then ended up doing a bunch of hiking um, and mountaineering and summiting with some of three mountains, summited three mountains in three days in the Yukon and then headed down to BC and went for the the tallest summit summit within the Northwestern or the specific region um, called Skiest Mountain. We were like 200 meters, 200 feet from the top and we were just socked in this crazy storm. Um, so we had to turn back, which was brutal. But, uh, but yeah, that was, that was a pretty amazing expedition. And then recently I've become an eco guardian as a job. So I, I count it as an expedition, but it's probably, it's not really, <laughs> um, but I get to live on a small island in the ocean. Um, it's only like 240 hectares and it's just rock um, manning a lighthouse and a research station and uh, managing the wildlife that's there um, and doing all sorts of things around the little island. Um, my last my last station was a month I was there and you're by yourself living there. And then come in this spring, I'll be there two, two and a half months. Um, so that's another one. I, I count it because it's pretty amazing and you have to really be adaptable um, and you have to create a lot of work and there's constantly work to be doing too. <laughs> Is that through a government agency? So one of the really neat things about, it's called Race Rocks Marine Ecological Reserve. And it works with such, it's such a team dynamic there, even though it's one person living there. You are hired by Pearson College, who has been given the guardianship um, or, or yeah, the research and stuff on, the, on this island. Um, so you go through Pearson College and then and are working with them. But then you're working with Environment Canada as they have a weather station there and weather cameras. And then you're working with the Coast Guard as they manage the lighthouse. Um, and then you're working with um, DFO, so fisheries because the water is a marine reserve. So you have to deal with poachers, fishermen and all of that side of things. Um, Yeah, there's like, and then it's a a federal park. It's considered a park. So you're also within a federal area too, or a provincial park. Wow. Yeah, so it's pretty amazing. It's pretty cool. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's chaos depending. Well, it's chaos. Yeah, it's chaos. There's when I was there, it was sea lion season. And so all the male California seals or sea lions and the stellar sea lions um, come up from the South and they, they kind of chill out and fatten up. They don't eat when it's mating season. 
So in the fall, they come up and they go to race rocks because the salmon are all running by there and they all get really fat. And it's like the craziest bachelor party in the entire world. And there's over 2000 sea lions on this like 240 hectare rock that, and, and you, and one you, <laughs> and you're having to kind of control them because they will destroy the historic buildings. There's native burial grounds on the rocks. So you have to keep the sea lions off of those. So you're like dealing with these electric fences that the sea lions don't care about. So they just break them all the time. You know, it's, you're trying to wrangle them up and it's, it's, that's chaos <laughs> and hilarious and entertaining. And how big is a, is a male sea lion? Oh, the, the stellar sea lions can be up to 2,500 pounds. Massive. Yeah. 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 And they have like huge, massive teeth too. Um, and they can, if they're, if they're angry on land, they can move surprisingly fast. They like launch themselves and they can get you if you're too close. They'll, they could latch on and you don't want that. No, that'd be terrible. And it'd probably smell yeah. bad too. Yeah, it's pretty smelly. Yep. Yeah. And it's come, come spring, it's the seagulls and the coastal birds will be mating and, and breeding on the island. So a different type of smell yeah. <laughs> and chaos. What is, what is your future hold? Um, well, coming up here, um, the spring, I'll be headed back to race rocks, as I mentioned for, for two, two and a half months. Um, so I'm super excited about that and hopefully get back up North for an expedition this summer. I would love that. But yeah, really trying to, to find new, new adventures and new expeditions, um, adopting other people's journeys too, and continuing to share. That's, that's awesome. How does, how does one get started? Like if, if you're, if you're feeling a big itch to go do something like this, uh, how do you get started in, in planning or, or even just coming up with the idea of what it is you want to go do? Oh gosh. Well, I would say if you're just getting started in general, start small, um, make sure that you feel comfortable and confident because especially if you're solo, because you have to have full self-reliance on yourself. Um, so go and practice the skills that you need, whether it's paddling or hiking or whatever it is, fire starting, make sure that you're as confident and knowledgeable about those things. And then do the same with wherever you choose to go. So get knowledgeable about the wildlife that you're going to encounter, the weather systems in those areas, so that you go in with as little unknown and as little um, way to eliminate fear as possible until you get to a certain confidence level. Like I like to not know necessarily some aspects because um, you're not going to get lost on a river. So I like to kind of go in not necessarily knowing every bend and turn because I want it to be fully a new experience, but that comes with having that confidence and some knowledge as well. Yeah. And then see if you're, if you're on a strict budget in some way, don't let that limit you, but there's plenty of beautiful, amazing places close by every single person in this world. There's no excuse not to go outside and enjoy it. So it's pretty easy to find an expedition or adventure close to home, no matter where you are. Yep. I'd, I'd agree with all that. And whenever stuff like this comes up on the show, 
I just encourage people to do it. Like that, that first step is often the hardest. It's, it's not always the hardest. Like sometimes it gets a whole lot harder later on, <laughs> but you, uh, you've got to take the first step and, and maybe that one is the, is the scariest or the one that takes the most courage, but then you're just going and yeah. kind of let it happen and, and adapt to whatever the situation becomes. I agree. Um, have you heard of Les Stroud yeah. before? So, okay. The Canadian, he does, he's famous for survivor man. Um, he famously says, if you are only thinking about needing money to go on an expedition or an adventure or achieve your goals, you're dead in the water. It's uh, just go do it. Don't use making enough money or making money because there's not enough money that you will make ever. You'll always have that thought. Just go do it. Yeah. The only big yeah. canoe trip I've ever done and I hesitate to say big in the context of this conversation, but it was when I was a foreign, foreign exchange student in Norway. Um, I was in a class called uh, Friluftsliv, which means like um, free air living, free air life. And uh, I was in this class and I knew that we we're going to go on this canoe trip, but I think I'd only been in Norway for a couple months. So my Norwegian was absolutely garbage. So I really didn't know what I was getting into. And I certainly didn't know what I needed to bring. And uh, we got on, got on the bus to go to the place that we we're going to get on the canoes. And I realized that everybody had brought their food with them. I was like, oh man, I don't have any food. And we stopped at this gas station and uh, the, the only like food that they had in there was, uh, was bread. So I bought two loaves of bread. I didn't have very much money. I was an exchange student and, uh, it's like good enough. And, you know, I think we we're out for four or five days canoeing every day. And the gal that was in my boat was the Lily dippinest paddler I've ever encountered in my life. Um, so I, I was the steering wheel and the, and the gas pedal for the whole thing. And I did it for like $3 in bread. Um, not that big of a deal. So you, you can go out and you can make it happen on a pretty short budget. Uh, I would recommend maybe mixing up the nutrition a little bit more and <laughs> hopefully understanding the language, but it was a good trip. I had a, I had a really good time. That's so amazing. See, you don't need much. Don't need much. A couple <laughs> loaves of bread and you're I set. Definitely on, on that, um, cross America trip when I was paddling, once I ended up solo, um, when I was brought on it, like it was all supposed to be sponsored. The, the guy was going to be paying for all the food. That was kind of my pay for going on this trip and documenting it. Well, once I'm solo that he wasn't doing any of that. So all of a sudden I'm caught off guard down in the South. So I was going to Dollaramas and getting instant mashed potatoes and those sidekicks meals. And that was what I lived off of for, for 50 days or more than that. Cause I got them before that too. But, uh, yeah, like 50 days in a row, all I was eating was instant mashed potatoes and sidekicks. Were they? But I, I was living. I, I was living off of like a dollar fifty a day. <laughs> yeah. Were Were they uh, Idahoan brand mashed potatoes? I want to say yes. Those are my favorite. Yeah, they come in different flavors in the yeah. packages. Yeah, yeah, they're amazing. They're so hard to find in Canada, but yeah, they're like there's like three cheese, and then there's like yeah, all different flavors. They're mm -hmm. I actually started craving them after I left. I was like, I want some more of these. I've tried to find them. I eat them at home sometimes. Not going to lie. 
but I, I bring those in my pack with me when I'm doing um, backcountry hunts. And I, I kind of despise freeze, freeze red food to be completely honest. Like it, it's about fuel, not about, you know, how it tastes. So I'll take half a pack of those Idaho and mashed potatoes and then mix it in with whatever the freeze dried thing is, is pretending it's supposed to be, whether it's, you know, spaghetti or chili or, you know, who knows what, but yeah, you can pack a lot of calories in there for a very little amount of weight and a very small amount of money, but on their own Idaho and mashed potatoes, pretty good stuff. I thought they were pretty good. And yeah, they're, <laughs> they, they definitely gave me the energy I needed. Uh, of course, like zero nutritional value, but, um, they, they filled my belly. <laughs> Can't <So> be going. <laughs> I imagine, uh, I mean, you're, you're a really fit person, but you probably lost some weight on that trip. Uh, yeah, I don't know how much, but I think it was, yeah, 20 pounds or something. Maybe, um, I generally am pretty good at putting on some weight before an expedition, because I do know that that's going to happen. And I'd rather have some fat to lose than immediately start losing my muscle mass. Yeah. Cause you'll lose it so fast in your legs when you're canoeing every single day. Right. That, um, that I, I, and I've, I've done this on all my expeditions, um, where I shift over to the diet that I'm going to be on, on the expedition a couple weeks prior so that my body can all adjust to it. Um, cause I generally have a tendency to, to have issues to start with, with those like dehydrated meals and stuff. They're hard on everybody's stomach. Um, but so your body's used to getting less calories in that side of things. Um, but yeah, and then if I'm going up to Northern Alaska to paddle, it's nice to have a little bit of fat for warmth. Yeah. And then you lose it so fast. You're cold and you're paddling for 16 hours a day, but then you're also setting up and breaking camp. So, so you lose, you lose it super fast. Um, and then you just start losing your muscle, which sucks. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> but, um, if, since you've had so much experience in the outdoors and, and in camping and all that stuff, is there one piece of gear that you can think of that sort of frustrates you that, that you wish existed or, or wish would be better and improved upon? Oh my goodness. That I wish could be improved upon. Um, wow. I've never been asked that question before. I was like already lining up like my recommendations of good gear. <laughs> As you're, as you're asking. So, well, I have one that I'll, but I, I'm going to have to call them out this, this brand though. Is that okay? Yeah, okay? that's fine. Oh okay. yeah. Okay. So, um, the Camillus, they make like hatchets and saws and stuff and axes oh, yeah, and yeah. knives. So, so they have a fold up saw that it's a hatchet and then it's got a fold up saw in the handle. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, has a very bad design flaw that the locking mechanism for the saw is where you grip the saw. So if you grip the saw and you hold it like at, at all tight, you unlock the saw. Gotcha. And that's a problem that happened to me. That happened to me and took my finger off. Off. So yeah, while I was on an expedition on top of a mountain. Oh yeah. That was another expedition, but yeah, flipping a tire for like 30 days, a 400 pound tire, um, up two mountains. Um, what? yeah, I mean, and on top of the one mountain, yeah, on top of the one mountain, the saw came down and, and took my finger off and they, they put it back on, but that's what it looks like now. 
doesn't oh, do looks pretty good i've i've seen and worse. like oh yeah, yeah i actually told them if it's not gonna be of any use and it's just gonna get in the way don't put it back on but they won't do that I was so disappointed. So like, just get rid of it. If it's gonna in, if it's gonna prohibit me from like paddling properly or doing camera stuff, just get rid of it. <laughs> I don't care about looks. They're like, no, nah, we have to. We have to try. So. I, I did a lot of team roping when I was a kid, and there was a oh, cool. there was an old cowboy that had dallied uh, his pinky finger um, around a saddle horn and and lost his pinky, and. Of course, as a little kid, you're curious about stuff and you maybe don't have a lot of decorum. Um, I certainly kind of struggle with that to this day. But uh, I said, you know, how you how you doing without your pinky? And he said, you know, if I'd have known how good life is without it, I would have cut it off a long time ago. But yeah, I just thought that yeah. was a there's, there's definitely been a couple moments. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> where I'm like, dang it. But what I always say is because it just sticks out when I, and it's on my right hand. So the hand that I always use, but I'm drinking anything. I'm extremely classy and proper because it's always just oh, so drinky. very nice. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no matter so what. Perk. Yep. Um, <laughs> have you used silky saws? I don't know that name. Okay. Oh. That's my favorite folding saw out there by a lot. Um, they're, okay. they're wonderful and it doesn't stuff inside the handle of a hatchet, but it's a really, really good saw and they're sharp and they cut with, you know, the smallest amount of effort and they've got a very good lock um, that's in the correct position. So next time you need <laughs> a folding saw, you should look those ones up. I definitely will for sure. Yeah. Good suggestion. <laughs> um, okay. Last question. When you're, when you're out on this stuff, are, are you ever trying to fish or, or hunt your own food or are you bringing all that stuff with you? I, I always bring stuff. I do fish when I'm out at times, but, um, but I always bring, bring food and I always bring like a couple extra days because a lot of what we do is so remote that, um, that yeah, it's always best to have, to have a couple extra days of supply with you. Yeah. I've, I fished, uh, um, when I was up in Northern Alaska, we fished a bit. Yeah. I don't, I've also, I don't really like to bring more smells into, my sure. camping area and camping when I'm in an extremely heavily grizzly populated area. Yeah. Um, just, just more so for my own nerves yeah. than real, like real necessary danger, necessarily danger. I don't want to make other people fear that or anything. If you're smart about it, like cutting it up away from camp and leaving the skin and cooking even away from camp and all that stuff. I mean, I would obviously do that, but I just don't like having that thought in the back of my mind that might hinder my, my trip just because now I'm nervous. So, yeah. Well, I mean that, that gal outside Ovando, Montana got killed by a grizzly last spring. And unfortunately people really attacked her because she had food in her tent and like she was basically in town. All right. They're like, I, I don't want to cast cast blame or throw shade over this lady because she had food in her tent. But if you are around grizzlies, it's a good idea not to give them any extra reason to try and get in the tent with you. Yeah. Yeah. There's like, I, I don't, I, I don't keep food in my tent ever, but realist, like there's so much other thought that you can go into so that yeah. there isn't so much blame on a person. Like 
we smell like our food. As soon as we open like one of those dehydrated meals, it lets out a poof. We have food on us. Like right. all of our clothes smell exactly like what we're cooking. All of those things, unless you're one that is changing and putting your, your cooking clothes over with the food cache, you're still bringing in all of the scents of the food into your tent with you. You're just not necessarily, you're just not bringing in the edible stuff. Yeah. So there's that whole thought process of it that I, I don't, I, I, I don't like bringing food in. Don't bring, don't put extra potential, but she probably still smelt like food anyways. Yeah. And if the bear was coming in for that little bit of food, would it actually have made a difference? Cause it, it, it ate her, it killed her. Like if it killed her, then yeah. there was probably another reason. Right. It was a super aggressive bear and it, it yeah. ended up like ripping the door off somebody else's house and causing some other problems. And then uh, they ended up getting killed a couple of days later, fortunately, but some bears just get aggressive like that. I've kind of gone the opposite direction as what you're talking about, where I'll do some longer trips where I don't bring any food with me and I'll just depend on, on a pistol and a, and a fly rod. And that's been fun, but I've, the last time I did it, I ended up hiking like, oh gosh, I think around 50 miles through a local wilderness area. And I went early enough in the year that by the time I got up in elevation, I'd hiked into winter again and there was no food at all. There was no berries. There's no fish. There's no animals. There's nothing. Um, so that ended up just being a really low calorie, high movement exercise that, that I was doing in preparation for a mountain goat hunt. And I, I just wanted something that was really difficult to do. And, and also to beef my legs up a little bit prior to that hunt. Um, yeah. But uh, interestingly, uh, given this conversation, the way that you and I got connected is you got asked to go on the show naked and afraid, and you weren't, weren't able or willing to do it. And you reached out to me to see if I wanted to do it. And I don't want to be naked on television. So that's going to be a no for me. Um, but uh, is, is anything like that in your future? Have you reconsidered that at all? Um, no. Not that one. No. I think <laughs> I, I've kind of said that I'd go on like if like Survivor or something like that ever asked, I'd go on it. Um, yeah, there's a couple I would definitely consider. Um, but big one for me for Naked and Afraid wasn't the like being naked or the survival side. It was that I've done so many trips now and just life experiences with somebody that I don't know. Um, and it being particularly a male and it takes a certain type of person to generally go and do something like that, that you're either like me and, and, a, and a number of other people that I've watched on alone and things like that, who are just super free and like, so unjudging and so patient that they can get along out there because they're patient enough to not get angry when they're starving. Or they're understanding that, yeah, okay, it's pouring rain out. Yeah, I'm going to be cold if I go out there or I'm going to take a relaxing day. And they have that patience and understanding. And then there's the people that are like real hard asses that go and do these things to push themselves and are really aggressive about it. And I feel like that probably is who they would pair me with because they would want the opposite. And just having gone through that so much, like mentally, I just don't. It, that would be what would break me if, if, yeah, would be that side of it. And I, I just know, like, I don't need to put myself in that scenario um, anymore. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. The past experiences. I I don't, (laughs) I don't blame you a bit. And I also wouldn't want to end up with bugs, man. I've, I've, I keep talking about that, but the bugs would break me. Oh man. I had every type of bug bite, everything, every type of skin (laughs) thing from, from poison oak, poison ivy to ants, to wasp, everything. When I, by the time I finished that cross America trip, Oh, my skin was just shattered from it all. Heat stroke, everything. Oh, just a disaster. Yeah, so I understand. <laughs> well, where can uh, where can people look at your photography, buy photos, follow along in the in the exciting life of of Jillian? Uh, Instagram would be by far the best place. Basically, an online portfolio. Um, be always be sure to read the stories that go along with all of my videos and photos. Um, and it's just Jillian A. Brown photography. Um, pretty easy to find. And you'll find that link in the podcast description as well. Um, Jill, thank you for your time. This is, this is a fun conversation. You've led a fascinating life and I think that the best is still to come. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It was great to chat with you too and get to know you a little bit. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, stay warm up there and uh, we'll be in touch again soon. Amazing. Sounds good. Thanks so much, James. So I found this old ad and there's like dudes dressed up like construction workers and a guy's got a jackhammer and there's a crane and, you know, they're moving all these big steel beams and stuff. Aladdin Stanley Thurks. Stanley, the tough. All steel thermos bottle that's completely dependable. They're showing this thermos like falling off this building and hitting all this other construction stuff. And built to take a bounding year after year. <laughs> Get the top one. Oh, lands in a wheelbarrow. The guy grabs it out of the wheelbarrow. Now he's going to pour himself a cup of coffee. I love these cheesy old ads. And most of the time, like they're lying to us, right? That's most of what marketing used to be was just like telling a lie or, or at least telling a version of a lie that, that made you think that you needed this thing. But we'll tell you what, when it's cold out, like it is right now, the only way to keep liquid liquid and not freezing in your pack is by putting it in something that's insulated. So packing a thermos in the wintertime is really smart, whether it's for a hot beverage like coffee or if you just want to bring some water with you, which is a really important thing if you're going to be out adventuring around in this uh, in this snow that we've got all over the country. And I think you should be because it's a great time of year to get out and about. You know, this is both a comfort and a safety thing. If you want to get something from Stanley, which I encourage you to do, you can use the discount code 6RANCH. That's the number 6 in the word ranch. And that'll get you 25% off of just about anything on their website encourage you to do that. They're great supporters of the show and uh, great supporters of this audience. And I love you guys. So stay warm out there, have a nice warm drink and uh, make sure you're drinking it out of a Stanley product. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast 
was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.